Uh, some of you may uh, recognize the name Will Rogers. Will Rogers was a humorist in the 20th century and a political pundit, and he had some very catchy phrases that uh, he would come across with. And one of them was, he said, everybody is ignorant. How do you like that? Everybody is ignorant. And then he qualified it only on different subjects. Uh, so there are uh, things that each one of us don't know about that we're ignorant of. Uh, that's true, and that's not the whole story, though, because uh, there are all different kinds of ignorance. There is ignorance uh, because people lack opportunity to learn, or perhaps they lack the ability to learn certain things. And then to use Peter's phrase in Second Peter, there are some who are willfully ignorant. For example, I am willfully ignorant of the heating and cooling system in this building. I don't want to know anything about it, okay? Other people can clutter up their gray cells, but I choose not to know anything about the heating and cooling system in this building. One philosopher said, it's not ignorance that's the enemy of knowledge, but it is the ignorance of our own ignorance is the death of knowledge. Uh, we may be ignorant on a number of subjects. Uh, you know, quantum physics is not my thing either, and I'm probably willfully ignorant of that. Uh, but we don't want to be willfully ignorant of what God's Word says. And so we gather here this morning, and we return to our study of the second letter of Peter. And we've been working through this. We haven't been here for a number of weeks, and so I need to review a little bit. Remember, uh, the theme of Second Peter, the second letter that Peter wrote, is faithful living in difficult times. I hope that resonates with you, because if you are a news junkie and you uh, are attached to reading the news every day, it can be very disturbing. We live in a time where we have 24-7 news, we have access to all the terrible things that occur around the world and in our nation and our own community uh, anytime we want. And uh, so we need to understand there is an opportunity, there is the ability to live faithfully to God in very difficult times. Peter starts out in chapter 1 by reminding us of our nature, the Christian's nature, which is the work of God. Look with me at chapter 1 very quickly. In verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So he begins with our position in Christ. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a position that Jesus Christ has given to you because of his sacrifice, his death, burial, resurrection. He intercedes at the right hand of the Father. He is our advocate, and you have a position. You are positionally justified, righteous. Now, if we were to go through Romans, remember Romans, we also have a condition, and that's we're trapped in these physical bodies. We're not totally pure yet because these bodies have not been redeemed but as a spirit and soul we have been redeemed and we look forward to that time when we will be in the perfection of heaven and so peter tells us about our nature it is the work of god and then he reminds us that from verses uh, 12 through the end of the chapter part of that he even read for us 
is the believer's nurture. How are we nurtured? How do we grow? How is it cultivated, this faith cultivated in our life? And it's through the word of God. And he makes this very clear declaration that God's word is a product of God's mind. He's not the product of some human being who sat down in some dusty cave and wrote out some of these letters here. It is God's word through the men and women he chose to communicate these things, the truth. And then all of chapter 2, all of chapter 2, he is dedicated to warning believers about our nemesis. There's a warfare going on, and the warfare is false teachers. And if you've been with us, we spent some time in chapter 2, and there is the reality that there are false teachers that invade the churches and turn people's hearts away from the truth and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we begin chapter 3. And chapter 3 is the believer's hope, the believer's hope, and that is the return of Christ. That is the believer's hope. The Christian's hope is the return of Christ. Jesus Christ said he will return again. And uh, all of Scripture points to the fact that there will be a second coming of Christ. Now, Peter here in this short chapter does not detail an end-time scenario or a consummation of the age scenario. He's giving us the big picture here. He's not detailing for us a, a rapture, a tribulation, a millennial time, and all of that. He's just simply giving us the picture, big picture of the consummation of this age, of this time. And so that is our hope. And Peter doesn't want us to be ignorant of that. Notice if you've underlined in, in your Bible, it's a good exercise in Second Peter to underline every time the word knowledge or to know or to have our minds renewed, and there's some 17 or 18 occurrences. Peter is very strong on using our brains. He wants us to remember what he is teaching us, what we've been taught before. And so we come to this aspect of the return of Christ, and Peter is laying it out for us in broad brush strokes here. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we find the purpose for this letter. Peter declares the purpose why he is writing to believers in Jesus Christ. Verse 1, follow along as I read. This, <clears throat> this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And what he is doing is he's picking up again where he left off at the end of chapter 1, where he talked about the apostles and the prophets and how we got the word of God. And he's stirring up our minds. And he calls us beloved. There is, if, you, if you've read through Second Peter, there is such a jarring contrast between the end of chapter 2, where he has been detailing what false teachers look like, and, uh, and the beginning of chapter 1. Remember, at the end of chapter 2, he referred to them as a dog that returns to their own vomit, vomit and a sow who after washing returns to the mud or the mire and then there's such a sharp distinction he says this is now beloved the word is agapetoi and we the word agape is that christ-like love and he refers to the believers as the beloved in fact he'll refer to them three more times in this chapter as the beloved then he says this curious uh, note that this is the second letter i'm writing to you and we obviously would think well the first letter is first peter uh, but that's not necessarily the case. The, the, they're theologically different, 
And so I believe that there was a letter in between here that was written to this group of people, and this is the second letter where he is stirring up their sincere minds. And uh, that letter, the first letter that he wrote to them is lost. Perhaps it was just a, a, a rephrasing of the book of Jude with his own notes on it, but it was not uh, safe for us to put in our canon. But anyway, he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That word sincere mind is, means that it is exposed to the sunlight. It means it's purity. There is some purity in this, this mind that we are supposed to have. In fact, the word that is used there in the Latin is sin, <coughs> sincera. We get our word sincere from that, and it means without wax, without wax. For in the first century, there were unscrupulous dealers in pottery who would take a less than perfect piece of pottery that perhaps was cracked or had blemishes in it, and they would force wax into it in order to sell it as a perfect piece of pottery. So if you were shopping in the marketplace and you needed a piece of pottery, you would go down and because you are very astute, you would hold it up to the sun and spin it around and look because the sunlight would reveal any of the blemishes and the cracks through that wax that this unscrupulous dealer would put in there. And so it means without wax, sincere mind. It means our thinking, if it were exposed to the sunlight, it would be revealed that we have a sincere, pure thought life. That's what he is exhorting them here, and he's just assuming that's the way it's going to be. And then he tells them that he is going to remind them uh, and you should remember the words spoken beforehand. And he has two groups here, the holy prophets. He terms them holy or set apart or sainted prophets. And then the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. So he goes back to the authority of what men God used to reveal the truth of God's word to us. This book that you hold in your hands, you may have many copies of it, uh, was written by the apostles and the prophets, and it has authority because God is the one who has given it authority. And so he doesn't want us to be ignorant of these things. And so he gives us the purpose, and in verses 3 through 4, he basically talks about God's word is true. Verses 1 through 4, God's word is true. It is true. And there's the assurance of Scripture. I need to remind you that that English copy you hold in your hand, no matter which version, I mean, there are some versions that are better than others, uh, but it is pretty much all trustworthy, authentic, authoritative. Now, there are better translations than some of the others, uh, but uh, what, we, what I use is New American Standard Bible. You may use English Standard Version, uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Those are all what are called literal translations or word-for-word -word translations. The most popular translation or version is the New International Version, which is a good translation, but it is more of a thought-for-thought -thought translation. In other words, they've taken the thought of the passage and translated it. But nevertheless, uh, whatever we use in good versions of Scripture, uh, it is trustworthy, is authentic, it is true, and the Bible we have is we can be assured authentic and good. So the Bible is a perfect book. 
It is a perfect book because it comes from a perfect mind. Every word, every, every element of the word of God is perfect. It is without error. It is a prophetic book, as we've seen. We've, we're given prophecies in the Old Testament of the first advent of the Messiah, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, which Jesus Christ fulfilled his birth, virgin birth, Isaiah 7, 14, his birth in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, his humiliation and death, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, his resurrection, Psalm 16. There is prophetic content. They have foretold what is coming. And also, there is prophetic content in the New Testament that Christ will come again. And here, Peter is detailing for us the second coming, the second advent of the Messiah. Plus, as we've said, the Bible is a preserved book. It is a perfect book, a prophetic book, and it is preserved for us. Even though the original documents were written in the first century of <clears throat> in, in, in A.D., uh, it is a preserved book. God has preserved it through the centuries. And so God's word is true. In verses 3 through 4, Christ's return is doubted. Look at verses 3 and 4. Again, he uses that term, know this, know this. We dare not be ignorant. Know this first of all, which means above all things. It means that uh, this is something we need to pay attention to, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, he continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So his return is doubted. When I worked road construction, forest road construction in Montana, I worked with a, a, a guy. Uh, he was quite a bit older than I was, uh, but he was atheistic, agnostic at best. And uh, one of his favorite saying is that you're slower than the second coming of Christ. Where did he get that? He got that right out of here. This has been going on every century. Every generation has had those who mock, who scoff that Christ is coming again, even though Christ said he was going to do it. And so their character, they are called scoffers, aren't they? To mock or to ridicule, to make fun of. And uh, every pronouncement of God is just fuel for another joke. Perhaps you know people like that. Uh, but our, our culture, our society is full of that. And their conduct, uh, they, these people make light of God's coming judgment. And uh, so they are ignoring it. And they are like early in, in Second Peter, they talked about the angels who fell. And God judged them about, <coughs> excuse me, about the flood, Noah's flood. And God judged the scoffers then. And then Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, God judged them also. And they complained also. They have, uh, their character were scoffers. Their conduct was negative, And they complained. They looked back over their own memories in verse 4 there, and they said, uh, you know, ever since our fathers fell asleep, and they're referring to the patriarchs of Israel. They're referring back to the fathers of Israel here when it says the fathers. It continues just as it was beginning from creation. Uh, so they are doubting that Christ will return again, in the fact, in the face of what God's word has revealed to them. In verses 5 through 7, not only is God's word true, but God's work is certain. God's work is certain. Christ's return is predetermined. It has been set before the foundation of the world. God in his sovereignty knows all things at all times in all places, and he has a program and a plan that is in process right now. 
In fact, again, I remind you that God, being God, having intimate, er, infinite knowledge, knows all possible plans he could have chosen. And this is the perfect plan that we exist in. We don't think of it that way because it seems like the world is such a mess and perhaps our life is full of difficulty and, and sadness and all of that. And yet this is the best plan. God's return, Christ's return is predetermined. He reminds us that these critics are willfully ignorant. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. For when they maintain this, in other words, they're saying, ah, it's all going to just keep going the way it was. It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. They are willingly ignorant. Uh, the critic forgets that God is going to carry out his word. And Peter here gives us three instances when God has and will stepped into time and changed the world. Peter's three examples will show us that God intervened historically. Therefore, what is yet to come in the future is guaranteed. Notice that <clears throat> Peter here says that it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. He's going back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. Notice there are two elements here. There is the word of God. In the beginning was the word. And then there is the agent of the work or the word of God, and it was water. If you read Genesis chapter 1, if we took time there, remember the, the waters were formless and void, and then he separated the waters and formed land. And so there's this formation of the world. He takes them all the way back to creation. And then he talks in verse 6 about the flood in Noah's day. He's going to demonstrate to them that God is going to carry things out through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. The little word which there refers back to a, a plural situation. So here the water is the agent of destruction, but it was commanded by the word of God. Again, the word. The word in the water was the creative agent in Genesis, and in, <clears throat> in the flood of Noah, it was the word of God, and the agent again was water. And then in verse 7, there will be a fire yet to come. Notice in verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The word is using the cleansing agent of fire in the consummation of the age of this universe, of our solar system, of all that is being created. And so Peter gives us three instances to demonstrate that the false teachers, the scoffers, are wrong. They don't understand history correctly. They are conveniently overlooking the truth of what God has done in the past. And so our hope is in Christ alone. And the return of Christ is a certain event. Jesus spoke about it. The angels in Acts 1 referred to it. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 talked about it. John in Revelation 1. So God's word is true. His work is certain. And third, in verses 8 through 10, God's will is merciful. God's will is merciful. Christ's return is, from our perspective, delayed. Look at verse 8. But let not, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. There's that word, beloved. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. He's quoting Psalm 90, verse 4, when Keevan read that for us. You may have picked up on that. Uh, but here, the reality is you and I, human beings, measure time by time, okay? 
we understand time. We have 24-hour periods. It's a day, and 30 days roughly is a month, and years go by. We measure time by time because we are limited. We are finite creatures who don't understand it. But God, who is infinite, measures time by eternity. And he's saying here that it is in, from his perspective, God is rarely ever early, but he's never ever late. God is going to carry out. He is not really deli- delayed, but it's a reality to consider. If we were to spend time in Psalm 90, uh, we would start seeing some characteristics. There are five points that come out of Psalm 90 because Peter is going back to Psalm 90, and he looks at the whole context of that psalm. And first of all, we recognize that in that psalm, the psalmist Moses uh, affirms that God is an eternal God. Deep in eternity, says the psalm, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, verse 2. This is the perspective from which uh, a millennium or a thousand years can look like a day. In fact, uh, it has been said that uh, Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was really only two days ago, okay? And the church age is only two days old uh, in God's perspective on time. He is our dwelling place throughout all generations. He is outside of time. Secondly, God is a creating God. In Psalm 90, verse 2, you brought forth the earth and the world, and that's what the psalm says. And this is the weakness of the scoffers. They do not recognize that God is eternal, that he is the creator God. And then thirdly, God is a judging God. It tells us in verse 3 of that psalm, you turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, all sons of men. He's actually reflecting, Moses is reflecting back upon uh, the consequences of sin in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, that physical death and spiritual death enter the world. To dust you shall return. And then fourth, God is a saving God. The frame of this psalm is the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. He has made promises clear back to Genesis 3 that he will send a rescuer, a savior, a redeemer, and he has done that in Jesus Christ. In verse 1, it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, and may the uh, favor of the Lord God rest upon us in verse 17. And, of course, uh, God's anger and indignation, and yet he can show compassion and favor And our only hope is in the covenant promises of God. So God is an eternal God. He's a creating God. He's a judging God. He's a saving God. And finally, he is a moral God. Typically, uh, scoffers and the like sit in judgment of God. And yet God is a moral God. He is the judge. And he will judge rightly. We talked about righteousness early. And uh, he will have an absolute perfect judgment of what goes before Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. These five lessons are central to Psalm 90, and they reflect back into Second Peter chapter 3. And so we need to be reminded that God is not dragging his feet. Contrary to what my coworker said many years ago, uh, it's not slow according to the second coming of Christ. God is patient toward us. And there's a a certainty to consider in verse 9. He said, The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Uh, God does not take pleasure in the death of human beings. Uh, That's declared elsewhere. 
And God is patient. He wants people to come to repentance, having a change of mind to change our direction. And so there's this certainty to consider. And so God, in our space and time, he's carrying out this plan. In verse 10, it says, but the day of the Lord, and that is a a technical phrase which compresses uh, the rapture of the church taken away to glory, uh, the tribulation period, the seven years, the millennial period of 1,000 years, that is a, a, a compressed way of talking about all those things, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be built, uh, burned up. And so Peter is uh, commenting on this. He says the heavens will disappear with a roar and uh, they will be destroyed by fire. It will be laid bare. The earth will be laid bare. And so this morning... We want to make sure that we remember, that we recall that we have a future and a hope if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life, you don't want to be here in what Peter is describing. You don't want to be involved in this. Uh, You want to know that you have a future and a hope because of what Christ has done for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.